When I was young, I learned that love was all about romantic comedies, Valentine's Day, chocolate, and flowers. A lot of capitalist heterosexual BS. Now I know that real love is ferocious, it's terrifying, and it's a catalyst for change. I'm Ethan Lipsitz, and I created Love Extremist Radio as a platform to engage with people who are on the front lines of wrestling with and redefining love on their terms. They're activists, artists, and creators, all making change in their communities and the world. Thanks for being here. Together, let's define what it means to be a love extremist. Love is the truth. Love is the truth. Love is the truth. Love is the truth. Tim Phillips is the founder and CEO of Beyond Conflict, a global nonprofit involved in conflict resolution in more than 70 countries, including South Africa, Northern Ireland, and El Salvador. He has advised the United Nations, the U.S. Department of State, and the Council of Europe, and has been a frequent speaker in national and international forums, including the Council on Foreign Relations and the U.S. Congress. Welcome, Tim. How are you? Uh, well, uh, thank you, Ethan. I'm well, uh, as well as one can be uh, in the midst of a pandemic and uh, demonstrations that are long overdue and hopefully action on uh, on racial equity and many of the other challenges we're facing as a community right now. Yeah, yeah, it's it's quite a time to be involved in an organization called Beyond Conflict as so many conflicts are bubbling to surface. Uh, you're in Boston, is that right? I am, and um, you'll hear that in my voice, I'm sure, as we go in. And uh, and the sun has come, and it's a beautiful day here. Great, and I've I've been following along a little bit as my my family is in Boston, and I know there's been um, some uprisings and folks getting out on the street and and um, protesting and and activating on behalf of Black Lives Matter and the movement for Black Lives. Have you been amongst any of that, or, or kind of seeing that? Unravel. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it reminds me. Um, and now I'm dating myself of my mother in the late '60s, early '70s when I was a child, taking me to the Boston Common when there was a big anti-war demonstration. About a hundred thousand people were there. Wow. Uh, or into Harvard Square, and I remember the police used to have these uh, tactical police units on horses, and I remember a few of them came running by me and frankly scared the living wits out of me as a child. And years later, I asked my mother why she put me in such uh, harm's way. And she said, well, you need to get engaged. <laughs> nice. Um, and yeah, I, I did uh, both witness and uh, supported one of the marches that happened about two weeks ago. And uh, I'm looking out my window where one of the marches took place, which was the location in 1965 when Martin Luther King um, marched from Roxbury to the State House and to the Boston Common and spoke. So the city is full of a lot of history and a lot of uh, the revolution started here. And, and hopefully this is a real opportunity for some significant change, which we're long overdue for. Absolutely. Yeah. So it sounds like you've been kind of brought into this work from a very young age in terms of uh, being involved and being engaged by your mother. Um, do you have other points of reference and memories that really brought you into conflict resolution work and, and kind of your genesis of, of how you began? 
Yeah, thank you. And it's a question I've often pondered on uh, over the years because um, sometimes I would uh, do some teaching at local universities and students would ask, how do they study and prepare for a career like mine? Yeah. And I just say, I, I don't know how to answer that because I'm unemployable. Um, and what I came to realize is that creativity can take different forms. We think of it in writing. We think of it in the visual arts, uh, music. We think of it as entrepreneurship and uh, the, the private sector. But creativity can be in the nonprofit world. Um, and I realize and I, I give my mother, my family, um, a lot of credit um, for sort of what was in the mother's milk. Mm. Um, she wasn't a traditional activist, you know, demonstrating every issue and every cause. I, she sort of picked her battles. She is very involved in democratic politics. And this is, you know, the period of John F. Kennedy when he first ran for office, as well as my grandmother, uh, who was an Irish immigrant to the city, uh, was involved in some union work around women back in the 30s and mm. uh, early 40s. Um, and I think you sort of pick it up as a norm and, and sort of in the in the family without it being explicitly said. And um, and I think for me, um, I had a curiosity about the world. And I think I had been already sort of uh, preconditioned to think about what you can do, what you can give back, um, what difference you can make. And I think, you know, based on when I was coming of age uh, in the late 80s, when I was in my late 20s, when the Cold War was ending, uh, sort of became, in hindsight, the opportunity to become active, but not so much locally, but internationally. Yeah. So what were some of the first kind of active international opportunities you sought? Well, what happened was actually in, in 1986, I was um, uh, watching the Super Bowl at uh, home of uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin and our husband, Richard Goodwin, who I'd gotten to know. And he was a key advisor to JFK and LBJ. And he was the one who helped come up with the Alliance for Progress. Um, and it was at the height of the Reagan administration and the war against the Sandinistas, the Contras, and what was happening in El Salvador and elsewhere. And I remember vividly, there was a news clip in between the Super Bowl of uh, Bob Dole, who I think was then the Senate Majority Leader, flying into Managua to do a press conference and flying out. And I just sat there and thought, what was that about? Hmm. And, and I was of a generation that really you know, struggled with sort of the U.S. intervention in the region. But I was also one trying to understand what's going on there. And I remember um, having a conversation with uh, Dick and, and Doris Goodwin, and they talked about having been there uh, in the last several years with some members of Congress. And then uh, what Dick Goodwin did for JFK and LBJ at a key moment um, and U.S. relationship to the region. And I just had one of my first sort of, I guess, creative or social entrepreneurial sort of ideas, which is, huh, wouldn't it be interesting to organize a trip of people like Dick and Doris Goodwin, um, writers like James Carroll, um, other journalists, other thought folks to go down to the region to see firsthand what was going on mm. and ended up meeting uh, some folks who ran a, uh, a small nonprofit, got funding, and brought some editors um, and sort of ex-policymakers, thought leaders, 
and ended up going to Central America in 1986, 87, and then 89, and meeting everybody from Oscar Arias when he was working on the peace process to Daniel Ortega when he was in the president of Nicaragua before the election to, you know, President Duarte and, and, and the FMLN guerrillas in exile. And it was just extraordinary and eye-opening. And it struck me, I was in my 20s, that one could actually potentially make a difference. Um, and, and that was really one of my first sort of forays. What did you feel like the difference that you were making was? Was it, was it kind of exposing the U.S. To, to this kind of bringing these journalists and, and, and writers in? Was that really about exposure or what was it that you were trying to do? I had a friend I went to college with who was a journalist and I was naive about his experience. And he had been a freelance journalist who went down to the region in the like 85, 86. And when I said to him, you know, when you write for the public and he looked at me and said, I don't write for the public. I write for my editor. And if my editor doesn't publish it, it doesn't get printed. And it was a real sort of eye-opener for me. And I'm saying, on one of the biggest farm policy issues of the time, so one or two people decides what story gets written that we all read. Mm. And that's when I started thinking that would it be interesting to bring editors and publishers and people like the Goodwins or John Kenneth Galbraith or... You know, Christopher Hitchens came on a trip and others and and the editor of The Washington Post, L.A. Times, to expose them to what was going on in the region first time uh, for the first time so that they can then get a sense of things. I mean, even uh, Rick Kurtzberg, who was then the editor of The New Republic, came on a trip um, on one of the three or four three trips I, I organized. And it was to expose them. The obligation was that they came on a trip, they had to write about it, they had to stay engaged, whatever their position was. Now, in hindsight, um, they were always sort of what you would call people who are uh, center-left, uh, liberal uh, in their view, very sort of, let's say, anti-Reagan administration approach to what was going on in Central America, but also very open mm. and very pragmatic and, and not going in with preconceived notions, but r- trying to understand what is happening in the region? And this was a time when there was a lot of open um, uh, immigration, uh, some maybe refugee and, and others coming from El Salvador to the States. Is that right? Well, yeah. I mean, it, the politics of it were, I think, a million Salvadorans had temporary status in the United States. Right. Because they were fleeing a, a leftist revolution, um, the way Cubans were allowed in. Mm-hmm. Um and but the real shame is I remember then in the early to mid 90s after the Salvadoran peace accords, where I later got involved through beyond conflict um, in the peace process, mm-hmm. um, flying down to the region and then seeing U.S. marshals with these young gang members who were the, literally the children of Salvadorans who fled in the 70s and 80s. Hmm. being deported back because they were arrested for gang activity, which they learned in L.A. and Chicago and other places, and literally being dropped at the airport and the marshals catching the next flight back. Wow. And so thousands of people like this were dropped into Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, uh, you name it. And they brought back this sort of the Crips and the Bloods and the Maras and all that from 
the United States hmm. to these countries. Did you get involved with uh, any of the gang activity that was taking place there or here? You mean to supplement my income? No. Um, <laughs> uh, no. I mean, the gang activity happened after um, the work I'd done. You know, the work in El Salvador uh, in Nicaragua in the late, both in the late 80s, early 90s, was around peace and the peace process uh, in reconciliation. So the gang problem didn't really start taking off until the mid-late 90s. I see. Um, and... Um, and then it was, you know, in the case of El Salvador, I remember the former head of the guerrilla movement, uh, Joaquin Villalobos, said to me that, you know, at the height of the the war in El Salvador, um, I can't remember the numbers now, maybe 10, 15,000 people were dying from the from the war, mm. you know, in a country the size of Massachusetts. Right. That was a lot of people. Yeah. But then within years, the number of people who died was way much higher after the official end of the armed conflict. Why? Because you had a mobilized country, you had a militarized country through the war, and then you had the gangs coming back, and then you had a country that had all these weapons right. um, circulating. And he was more worried about what would be the legacy of the conflict with the peace process. Uh, not that he didn't want the peace process, but recognize the instability that would would be generated. Yeah, and I think that brings me to one of my questions here. How do you ensure resolution stays in place? Like, what are the what are the things that are necessary? Well, I mean, that is the ultimate question. Um, you know, a number of years ago, we hosted a group of folks and asked, the theme was um, durable peace, fragile peace, and intractable conflict. And the question is, are there any peace agreements or conflicts that have been resolved in terms of a peace process that remain durable? And if so, why? Because war and conflict over time, I mean, does something deeply um, destructive, not only to the lives and the economy and sort of the social contract, but deep trauma sort of settles into a country if there's a conflict over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, look at Northern Ireland today, over 20 years after the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. And we were very involved in that peace process. You know, there's still a lot of instability in Northern Ireland, accelerated also by Brexit. But before Brexit, I took a group of Bahraini leaders, Shia and Sunni, to Northern Ireland uh, because we were doing work after the Arab Spring Mm -hmm. uh, in Bahrain and in the region. And I was surprised because I hadn't been to Belfast in a few years to see that the walls separating loyalists and Republican communities were extended longer. Not only were they still up, but they were growing. Wow. And to realize that while the Good Friday Agreement was significant in many ways transformative, it didn't deal with the underlying dynamics on the ground for many of the people who were caught in the middle of the conflict. Um, And... And so on one hand, you could say, uh, try to think of a bad analogy, you know, a married couple has a lot of children. They don't really like each other. They fall out of love, but they're still in the same house because they have children. Mm-hmm. And that's probably not a really good analogy here, but I'm, it, it's like there's something where a peace process can last in terms of like armed rebellion on a large scale, 
Um, but if it there's something missing that really makes it truly durable and transformative. And I remember in the case of Northern Ireland, we were bringing leaders in the early 90s through the 90s from different countries to share their experience, former enemies. And we brought Rolf Meyer, who was the chief negotiator for the for the clerk in the talks to end apartheid. Right. With Cyril Ramaphosa, who's now the president of South Africa, but he had been the chief negotiator for Mandela and the ANC. And I brought them to Northern Ireland around 94 for the first time, the same year of the first election in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And they stayed involved for years. Um, from 94 to 97, um, when the peace agreement was signed in Belfast. And I remember calling Rolf and Cyril that night about how exciting it was that they signed a peace agreement. And Rolf said to me, yeah, I watched it on television, but I'm deeply concerned. And I'm like, what do you mean you're deeply concerned? And he said, what I saw were Sinn Féin, Ian Paisley's party, the other parties all go to the microphone and give a different interpretation of the agreement they just signed. Mm. Interesting. And he said, that is a recipe for, for instability. Because if, if they didn't have a shared understanding, what was this conflict about? Why were we fighting? What did we agree on? And where do we go from here? Then this is, in some level, just a superficial band-aid. And he proved to be absolutely right. Mm. And, um, you know, it's funny when I, I say the word funny. It's not really funny. But when I talk to friends of mine in Belfast over the last few years, they would say, you know, we never really resolved the issue of what this conflict was about. So if you talk to Catholics, they would say it was either 50 years of oppression or eight centuries of oppression. And if you talk to Protestants in Northern Ireland or Brits in the United Kingdom, they would say it was a 30-year aggravated crime wave. Hmm. So you had these fundamentally different interpretations of what the conflict was about. And even though South Africa today, um, you know, has some major issues of inequality and access to um, wealth opportunity uh, and corruption, but their peace process has remained stable because they made it truly inclusive. Mm. And they learned that. And, and, and that's a really big lesson. So I, I'd love to... I don't know if this is a word, but presentize this, <laughs> bring it into just this moment in time, the last few weeks, and how what we can learn from South Africa and also Northern Ireland as it relates to the tensions growing here in America. Um, and curious to hear, I know you're doing some work on that, um, but curious to hear your thoughts as to how we frame the current conflict and um, and how we move forward collectively and effectively in, in addressing it? Well, that's such a key question. Uh, in some ways, I think that the 25 years of work I did around the globe was to prepare me for working here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a number of leaders from different countries have been saying to me for well over a decade that we needed to focus our work in this country. Mm-hmm. And I always said, yes, I know we have some profound problems, but what I recognized in hindsight was that they could see where we were heading, that we were developing a deep sort of identity-based us versus them um, form of polarization, that um, 
that the language, the tribalism, uh, the hatred, the unresolved issues, the deepening inequality um, really deeply concerned them to the point where they really worried about the United States going off the tracks. Um, you know, social unrest beginning uh, and deepening or electing a leader who would have more sort of nationalistic, populist, authoritarian instincts. Um, and they could sense that years ago. Mm. And look what's happened. Um, but I also, you know, I realized in a way, and I'm doing some writing about this, how when it comes to your own home, meaning the United States, how difficult this work of reaching across the other side is. Realize that I was truly privileged and at a safe emotional distance for 30 years, cajoling, suggesting, prodding people to talk with their enemies, sit across the table, find ways to reconcile, find ways to, to, to end conflict. And then I come to my country after the last three or four years, where it's, for most of us, but not all of us, it hasn't been that that violent except for members of you know major communities here and then realize this work is really difficult it takes on a completely different emotional uh state when it's your own community your own nation and your emotions get caught up you can't be objective you can't be objective and it and and so what are the lessons um i mean one of them that you know, one of the great honors of my life is that Nelson Mandela was on my advisory board and he would say, you have to be tough on institutions and structures, but you don't be tough on people. Mm-hmm. Allow people the capacity for change and growth. And and I'll give you a powerful example. So uh, I took a group of these Bahrainis to South Africa as well, Shia and Sunni. And... Um, and unfortunately, Mandela had passed away, and there was his former speechwriter who met with him and said that when Mandela was coming out of prison in 1990, um, he had drafted a speech for Mandela to give to the world. And he got it back with various handwritten um, edits. And one of the edits that Mandela hand wrote was F.W. de Klerk, who was then the president of apartheid South Africa. F.W. de Klerk is an honorable man. And the speechwriter said, Madiba, which is what they called him, comrade, you can't say that. You're coming out of 27 years of prison. Your people have suffered. We've lived under this beautiful, um, um, brutal dictatorship. You know, people don't want to hear that. Wow. And Mandela reached over and put his hand on the speechwriter's arm and said, it is up to him to disprove it. Mm. Think of that. It is up to him to disprove it, that I am taking, in a sense, my moral and political capital and giving him a loan so that he then has the capacity to be the partner we need for real change. Wow. And I think we need to learn that lesson here. How do we allow people to become partners for change? How do we allow people to reach across the other side and see something they may not see? And there needs to be a giving and a and a taking there. It sounds like a certain kind of almost a um, releasing of historic trauma, so as to face a future. And and 
it sounds like Nelson Mandela had done that internally within himself as a leader. But so much of that is also about that kind of reconciliation and that truth component, right? Where uh, our collective, I mean, going back to systems or, or communities, um, there's this need for collective facing of history, facing of the realities of 400 years of oppression in this country. Um, yeah, we can learn a lot at this moment from countries like South Africa and others. I mean, you know, so we were involved in helping introduce the idea of the Truth Commission in South Africa in the early 90s. And I was in those early conversations. And, um, you know, Mandela now in the whole South African experience is seen and almost like up on an altar in this iconic form. But, you know, for Mandela to come out of prison and say what he said and promote reconciliation, there was a lot of pushback mm-hmm. from his own wife at the time, Woody Mandela, which is why they didn't stay together, and many others who just felt like, no, this is our time. Hmm. It is payback. And Mandela said, I wanted a country and not just power. And, you know, and it wasn't just Mandela. So there's a great South African named Albie Sachs, who wrote this beautiful, powerful book uh, about his own experience with um, losing an arm and an eye to the South African um, security services trying to assassinate him in Mozambique in the late 80s. So he was white, Jewish background, member of the ANC since the 50s as a youth activist, was in the armed wing, um, and he was literally getting in his car in Maputo when a neighbor just happened to see him and called out his name, and he turned to wave. But his other hand was opening up the car. And when he opened the door slightly, it blew up. Wow. And it blew off his arm and lost an eye and almost was killed. And there happened to be a filmmaker on the street. And there's this film um, of him just trying to get up in the midst of all this smoke and dirt. And when he was at the hospital, one of the leaders of the armed wing of the ANC came to see him and said, Comrade, we will get your revenge. And I'll be looked at him and said, No. Um, that is not my revenge. As a matter of fact, his book was called, um, uh, I think it's called the, the, the revenge of a freedom fighter. I'll I'll think of it in a second, but here's the lesson. Albie said to me, I brought him to Boston four years ago, three years ago after Ferguson, and he met with community leaders and others. And this is a man who is as iconic as, as Desmond Tutu and many others. He became the head of the Constitutional Court. He was wrote the South African Bill of Rights for the ANC. Um, and he said, you know, in the late 80s before Mandela got out of prison, we and the, the executive of the ANC researched and tried to understand who are we dealing with? Not just the government, the Africana people. What did they experience that led them to build and sustain the apartheid state. In other words, what trauma did they go through? Hmm. What was the emotional burden that they right. had? Right. You mean under the English concentration camps, ethnic cleansing, the Boer War? There has to be something in their mindset that they experienced um, that built this and sustained it. And he said, we came to realize that we could not hold the African people collectively responsible for apartheid because it'd be so emotionally overburdened they wouldn't connect. They wouldn't engage. Mm. So if you look 
you know, that was real leadership. Yeah. And so when I think of what we need to do in this country today, you know, I, to be honest, struggle with um, some of the language that I wonder makes it difficult, as Mandela did with the clerk and many others, for people to reach across. Because somebody once said, there's an incredible African-American man um, who's done work, I think it's Daryl Davis, he's done work reaching across to grand wizards of various KKK mm. organizations. Mm-hmm. And he said, here's what I learned about fear. We fear what we don't know. Right. And I think that's one of the things is if, if you're the fr- afraid of giving up power, if you're afraid of your position, if you're afraid of losing as the case of the Afrikaners. And I remember working in Kosovo and Bosnia, the Serbs were losing things. You look at Russia and why Putin, you know, early on, when people lose something, um, it creates so much fear of the unknown. What's on the other side? And I think these are the things, partly, that I think we need to learn from and struggle with and try to figure out as a, as a nation. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, I just want to point out the book is called The Soft Vengeance of a Freedom Fighter. Oh, by that's right. Albie's book, Albie Sachs. Yeah. Um, thank you for, for bringing that to our attention. Secondly, it feels as though with COVID and the pandemic and the economic destruction and the huge amount of unemployment in this country that's been a result, it almost feels like the perfect storm for this kind of open question of the unknown and like fear of what's next. But that also creates this vulnerability across pretty much the entire country that opens us up to change in a really powerful way. And some folks have written about this. Arundhati Roy talking about this time is almost like a portal where things are in hyperspeed because People aren't working, at least not in the same way they were before, and many are not. Um, and there's this access to information. Everyone's on their computer or their phone and seeing what's going on in real time. And there's this current monumental shift in how we go about our daily lives, whether our jobs will continue after this, right? What, what the future holds. So it does feel like there's this kind of openness to the unknown or that fear of the unknown is, is really confronting everybody in this moment in different ways. And I wonder what the catalysts, what, what additional catalysts are necessary beyond the ones that are already in place with BLM and the movement for black lives and all of the um, conversations uh, that, that white folks are engaging in, in this, in this learning and growing and and supporting that movement. Um, I wonder what, what's going to, continue to push it forward. Um, but the, another thing you said, which really is interesting, is a lot of folks who are talking about white supremacy and addressing the evils of white supremacy within ourselves as white people are really talking about how we were stripped of our identity when we came to this country. And so many, you know, the idea of assimilation and coming into America and adopting whiteness, me as a Jewish man, you know, multiple generations before meant that I had to kind of reduce and, and, and did deduct or, or subtract some of my identity as a Eastern European Jew. And there's a lot of folks saying, well, actually we need to kind of get back in touch with what's been erased and find pride in the identity before whiteness, before we became white in this country, which I think is an interesting parallel to what you were talking about. But 
I, I had a question come up, which is if you were to have two individuals or organizations show up to represent kind of this conflict today and, and, and be able to kind of broker a conversation between them, do you have a vision of who they would be? You mean within this country? Yeah, within this country. Hmm. Um, well, I can't say I know all the players in the United States. I mean, organizationally and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, it, there are different ways one could think about it. Um, I mean, one thing that's maybe obvious, and I'm not sure if it's necessarily the right thing, is leaders of Black Lives Matter versus, not versus, engage with, you know, people who um, supported Donald Trump mm-hmm. and maybe voted for Obama in 2008 and 12 and made the shift and have been strong supporters of Trump since. Um, or it could be, you know, it's really interesting. There are some initiatives in Congress um, there's one that I'll be speaking to called No Labels, which brings together center left and center right House members and senators. Hmm. And what I thought was so interesting is they have much more in common than they do with the extremes of their parties. And that's a dynamic I've seen in every country that's trying to resolve conflict, whether in South Africa, Northern Ireland, El Salvador, the Middle East and so forth is those people who reach across the other side find it easier, who are not so much caught up in sort of tribalism or sectarianism or in strong ideological positions, um, find that they have more in common with people across the the divide Mm. than in their own, um, I don't want to call it the extremes, but those on the other ends of their party. Um, we're about, so I I have to think about who I'd want to bring together. Um, and I think, um, it would be really, be really key, um, to think thoughtfully about who to bring together, because there's always a risk that it's done for the optics of it. Right. You know, or should bring the extremes together in the United States and get them to talk to each other and see what happens. And I'd, I'd really want to know, like, what is it we want to achieve, right? Obviously, it's dialogue, but we want change, right? But what type of change? Who decides the change? Mm. Um, what is the work that has to be done before people uh, come together? And what's interesting, we're about to release a report this week um, called America's Divided Mind. And it's based on research that scientists we work with at the University of Pennsylvania did looking at polarization in the United States and what they were doing was looking at identity-based polarization Mm. because we've become deeply concerned about polarization in the United States. And, you know, what we're found is that, you know, polarization, which is inherent in any democracy, in any system of government, you know, if it's about profound disagreement, that's one thing, but when it becomes about identity, that's dangerous. And when you have a identity-based polarization emerging and us versus them mindset then a whole range of unconscious psychological processes come online sort of below the hood to drive us further and we can we can see that the last several years Mm. and yet and so we've looked at 
big issues like immigration and open borders and gun control and climate change. And when you would ask our researchers, Democrats or Republicans, like, so Democrat, where are you on open open borders and immigration? And the same with um, um, Republicans, the majority are in the middle. But if you'd ask the Democrat, where do you think the Republicans are? And you'd ask the Republican, where do you think the Democrats are? They would see them on the opposite end. Democrats would say Republicans want them completely closed and Republicans would say Democrats want them completely open. Right. And we, on, we see the same in media, right? Like media kind of pushes us to viewpoints about the other as extreme when in reality we're much closer. We're much closer. But here's the thing. So on issue after issue, Democrats, and Republicans are actually much closer together than they know. When you ask about like and dislike, Democrats, and Republicans overestimate by half how much the other side dislikes them. And even on dehumanization, to not see somebody as fully human, Democrats or Republicans assume that the other side dehumanizes them up at 50%. Wow. So if you think the other side sees you as fully less than human, not only why would you engage with them, they're a threat to your very existence. Right. And yet we're finding that these are what they call meta misperceptions. These don't actually reflect reality, but it's what we think because the echo chambers we live in, the silos we live in, in terms of cable television, social media, our political leaders, our communities, all of those um, are shaping what people think of the other and really making it difficult to realize how much we have in common. And then to realize, wait a minute, I have much more in common with somebody across the other side than I imagine increases the capacity and the willingness to even engage. Right. And important. Yeah. It's that, it goes back to that fear of the unknown, right? Right. It's so interesting. Do you think there's value in extremism? Do you think there, you've seen that kind of, you know, people talking a lot about uprisings and property destruction and some would consider that to be extreme. But do you think that there are extremists that you've seen? I mean, I, I very much, you know, reference Dr. King and, and his letter from Birmingham jail and being deemed an extremist and being told, you know, if I'm to be an extremist, I'm an extremist for love. But also, right. you know, you have the language of extremism being applied to Black Lives Matter activists right now by the by the government. Right. And Antifa, this this term that's kind of been created and not really existing in reality. What do you think about that? Frame? I mean, well, it's like words can be abused, right? Yeah. Um, no, I'm, I'm with you on the Martin Luther King uh, way of, of approaching it. Um, you know, revolution is extreme. Um, paradigm shifting and disruption is extreme. Anytime you move something from the status quo is in a sense an extreme move, right? You don't end apartheid i mean if you were a satisfied member of the apartheid state you know the notion of ending apartheid was an extreme um choice Mm -hmm. um and and so if the way it's currently being used is to threaten and to suggest that the position you're in is at risk because these people are extremists. In other words, they're threatening what you hold sacred or what you hold dear or your position or your privileges and so forth. 
Um, you know, one thing I've learned in this work is change is difficult, mm-hmm. but it's possible. There are a lot of people who fear change because um, they benefit from the current system. People fear change because they don't know what's on the other side. And a lot of people just don't like change because as a species, we're wired for homeostasis. Hmm. You know, it's like, uh, how do I, this, I don't know what this means. It creates emotional instability. Hmm. So interesting. I, I, I feel the opposite, but my personal story has probably um, pushed me in that direction. But the feel, feel like change is the only constant, you know, and um, embracing that reality, I think, makes life a little easier. But Right. So this is Love Extremist Radio, and I ask all of my guests this important question, um, and I think it's really specifically important to the work that you do, but how do you define love? Well, that's a really, yet another good existential question. Um, you know, for me, it's been a journey. Um, and I think to give love and to receive love is to recognize that one is both worthy of it to be able to give it. And I'm not sure if I'm defining it, but I'm, it's a precondition. Mm-hmm. It's to recognize um, an inherent self-worth, a foundation of self-esteem that all of us, by just the definition of being living, breathing beings, um, uh, are worthy of dignity. And dignity is inherent in, in not just in humans, I think in other species. And I think it's important to recognize that not in an ego way, um, but in a deeply almost sort of transcendent spiritual way. Um, because I think if you recognize that as a state that every human being deserves and um, is a foundation, then the very essence of it is love. Mm-hmm. And then I think that opens up the capacity to extend to others in meaningful ways. I think that's why when we get into language of using extremist language like radical love or love extremist, um, I think it actually serves a very different purpose than saying radical hate or radical religion or, you know, any other number, radical Democrat or Republican, because that love has this kind of universal quality to it and is something that yeah, so deeply tied to dignity and tied to just our humanity in general, right? Well, you know, hearing you speak, I mean, using the word radical or extreme or love, to me, not just as an intellectual construct, but as an emotional sense, is about a foundation that's solid. Mm. So it grounds everything as love. Where extreme and radical is not about, it seems to me, a grounded state. It's about changing the state one is in or others are in Mm. or moving forward. It's not to say that love doesn't benefit from extremes or radical change, but it's not, I think, in my mind, not to confuse the two. I mean, you could be a radical who's inspired by love Mm. and want to move it to a different place. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, to me, I feel as though the recognition and the reminder that love is the baseline and acting from that place 
unfortunately, in this time, feels like an extremist act because right. it's been so veiled by so many other things that love is often the last thing we're considering in our day or our job or our exercise of being a human. And yet, to me, I think it should be the first. And so some might call that extremist, I, I you know, and I use the language to be provocative intentionally, but I think it's it's interesting to consider what is necessary to get love at the top of the agenda and see that if that's our common goal, you know, there is no aisle to cross. We're all on this mission together. But, you know, it's interesting. Um, one thing I have found around the world, including in this country and our own communities and families, but even among very powerful people, um, and people who were either guerrilla commanders or military leaders on the hard edge. One word that they would all sit up and pay attention to is the word dignity. Because we know mm. when, we're, when our dignity is violated by others, but we don't necessarily know when we violate somebody else's dignity. And I've learned from a really good friend of mine who should be a future guest on your show, Donna Hicks, and who wrote this wonderful book called Dignity, mm. is that, you know, we're hardwired to know when we're threatened, what other people think of us. And when somebody violates our dignity, we know it. So we know, even if we don't call it that, we know our dignity, which is to feel respected, safe, understood, um, non-threatened, that we're worthy of it that we're worthy of that sort of recognition, but we don't necessarily recognize when we violate somebody else. Hmm. And that seems to me as an opening to then exploring, because for a lot of people, when you talk about what do you think of love, they get very uncomfortable. Yeah. But, you, but to talk about how do you think about, how do you experience dignity? Do you know when you feel your dignity has been violated? And Donna and I years ago were in a place where she asked a bunch of generals, have you ever felt that your dignity was violated? And each and every one of them spoke about it. Wow. That's a really interesting reframe. And I think that's, I really appreciate you bringing that up because I, I do, I, I really grapple with the fact that, yeah, love, I think isn't, it's either shy, shirked away from, or it's not taken seriously. And I think a big component of this show is really working to try to take love seriously, but maybe, I don't know if it's a lost cause, but Dignity is certainly a, a word that I think most people can relate to. And many people have given their dignity away or sometimes, right. sometimes intentionally, sometimes not. But I think there's in, in, in many cases this sense of, well, you know, I, I, I've lost that. You know, that, that's no longer part of me. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, it's yeah. I mean, for a long time. Somebody asked me a question like you did about love. I would sort of roll my eyes and and then realize it's it's a very difficult thing for people to grasp until they finally grasp it. Not just certainly not at an intellectual level, but a deeply emotional level, a deeply visceral level is. And then, you know, peeling it back of recognizing the role of dignity, the experience of dignity. Um, and you get to what's underneath that. Because love is not just what you want, it's what you give. Mm -hmm. 
And that to me is the foundation stone. Yeah. I think that's a really important point is, is, is that, that element of giving. There's also, to me, what ties it into kind of something that maybe people might take more seriously is uh, the relationship between love and death. And right. how when we face our death or face our mortality, it often becomes quite clear the importance and essence of love and mm. where it existed or didn't in our lives and, and where we call for it in our times of need when our when our, the the delicacy of our body is in question right and that's uh true. yeah I, th I think that's that seems like another baseline that i you know i'm looking for these kind of points of connection where it's like what is a universal non-eye roller right that can get us to take whether it's love or dignity or what seriously because the next question i wanted to ask you is do you think as a species, we will ever be beyond conflict, right? Like, do you think conflict is actually innate and integral in being a human being? You know, um, you know, we do a lot of work, as you know, with brain and behavioral scientists, and they will say that it is kind of wired into us the way we've evolved. But the very word evolved means has it reached nothing. <laughs> right. We're still moving. We're still moving we hope. Um, but I'm always an optimist and, you know, um, you know, if you look at the length of history on this planet, I don't mean human history, but if you go back in deep time, it's, you know, we're not even showing up in a, uh, in a decimal point. Right. Um, but if you look at the last 5 million years, not the last several billion, um, we're still a recent, development mm -hmm. and i would like to think and hope that we can get beyond conflict and i think part of it is and this is why i think some of the work with brain and behavioral scientists is we need to disrupt the paradigms that really grow out of the enlightenment which is we're rational beings we're governed by reason emotion things like love you know, superstition, mythology, religion get in the way. And yet science tells us, tells us it's just the opposite. You know, that we're deeply, unconsciously, emotionally based beings. And that part of our brain shapes our capacity to be rational. And you know what's at the core is the ability to feel safe. Our brains evolved to be predictive. And the question our brain is always asking, what do other people think about me mm -hmm. and us? Mm -hmm. And why is that important? It's not just sort of utilitarian survival. It is to feel safe, to feel respected, to feel understood, to feel at peace. And then you strip away at that, it's to feel love. Yeah. And I think the more we recognize um, that bigger paradigm and, and so many things we do, actually make it difficult for people to access a feeling of um i don't want to say comfort because there's a lot of comfortable people who need to be disrupted <laughs> yes but indeed. In, i'm talking about just something that's more broader and holistic at least that's my hope it sounds to me like what you just articulated is a bit of a contract in a way and and something that i think could become a baseline for conversation, right? 
Mm -hmm. in in showing up to the table with a lot of varying perspectives and people coming from different sides of any spectrum, politically, culturally, religiously, identity-based, and showing up and recognizing ultimately we are emotional beings and our logical uh, processes that were so um, kind of idolized for the last two, three hundred years maybe need to take a back seat as we start to talk about healing um, and engage in a new process? Well, I'll say two final things. One is um, uh, I've met these individuals who survived incredible torture Mm -hmm. in different parts of the world. And what I would ask them and what they would tell me is the most important thing they want to do is understand why this happened to them. To reconstruct their identity feeling of, I don't mean identity as a particular individual, but their humanity is to feel like, why was I treated this way? And it goes back to dignity. Why would somebody strip me of dignity? And, and it's, it's, it's core for people to survive this. We need to understand it's not revenge. Many of them said it's to understand because my dignity was fundamentally destroyed, but can it be rehabilitated? Mm. And I, I have found that individuals, whether it be survivors of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia or torture in Africa or Chile and other countries, you know, what would they, what they would say to me is, you know, they have met their torturers who's, who are still alive. And in some cases, these torturers cried were deeply, in a sense, traumatized by what they did to them. Mm-hmm. And that did more to release the trauma that the victims and survivors felt. And it's because the other person's true emotional trauma for what they did to me, the fact that they're suffering on an emotional level, and not just some legal or human rights covenant, as important as that is, but on a deeply emotional level on their own, is because they recognized that I didn't deserve this. Mm-hmm that I am worthy of respect, that they, they recognized how human I was, that I had dignity. And that was a profound catharsis for them. Mm. And as one of my science colleagues, who was a neuroscientist, said in a sense, he says, we have a biological necessity to feel understood. Yeah, that's right. And I, it's interesting because I've had folks on this show define love as understanding. And that sense oh. of connection and being truly understood. Um, well, you like that one? I do. I'd have to. I'm gonna have to go listen to these previous shows. Yeah, there's some. There's some good ones. Um, but yeah, it's um, an amazing man. Actually, he's a he's a barber, and he um, was talking about vulnerability in the barber's chair, barber in Chicago, and uh, how that sense of understanding is really what allows people to feel love. And so, um, yeah, that's a beautiful point that you bring up. And um, this has been such a, a powerful conversation. And um, I, I appreciate these book recommendations. Uh, I'm definitely going to share them in the show notes. I want to make sure people know how to find you at uh, Beyond Conflict. Um, and just and we also have a book called Beyond Conflict, which most people now get on um, Amazon secondhand. But it's really, uh, and it's also on our website uh, as a PDF. But uh, I think it's a really a good 
for people because it talks about what is it to recognize the need for change? What is it to talk with the enemy? What is it to compromise with the other? And what is it to deal with the past? Mm. Yeah, your work is just so incredibly important, not only now, but always, but um, really grateful that you made time for this conversation and that we, we could connect on this and especially in this moment. Um, anything else you'd like to say to the fellow love extremists out there before we sign off? No. Well, thank you, Ethan. This has been a real uh, privilege for me as well. Um, great conversation. Um, and um, yeah, and we're releasing this report, America's Divided Mind. Yeah. And we're here with people will be on our website later this week. Great. And um, and look forward to being in touch. Absolutely. Me too. So just quickly to take us out, I ask every guest to share their favorite love song. Got anything uh, off the top of the head? Oh, um, hmm. <laughs> it could be the first one that comes to mind or a favorite. I'd have to think. Um, trying to think, what was that great song by Elton John? Um, There's a punch. I know, but it, it, the word, it wasn't called love, but love was in it. And I'm just trying to think of, uh, oh, I think I may have to come back to tell you. Um John love songs. Let's see. We got Can You Feel the Love Tonight? There it is. True Love. Okay. Can You Feel the Love Tonight? Can You Feel the Love Tonight? I know it's kind of corny, but I I like it. It's a great song. Beautiful. Well, Tim Phillips, thank you so much. It's been great to connect. Uh, I'll share links and everything in the show notes and definitely check out Beyond Conflict. Check out the book and uh, look out for that polarization report coming out this week. And um, have a wonderful rest of your week. Thank you for being here. There's a calm surrender To the rush of day the heat of a rolling wind can be turned away An enchanted moment and it sees me through It's enough for this restless warrior just to be with you And can you feel the love tonight
distant kaleidoscope moves us all in turn. There's a rhyme and reason to the wild outdoors. When the heart of the star-crossed voyager beats in time with yours. And can you feel the love tonight? It is for listening to love extremist radio if you like this podcast please leave a rating and review on itunes if you want to learn more about being a love extremist check out www.extremist.love and follow love extremist on instagram and facebook find me also on instagram at ethan lipsitz hope to hear from you soon peace 